0: Memphis, Tennessee, January 23rd, 1892. For several days now, snow had fallen upon the city, creating a sluggish white blanket interwoven with ice and mud. Alice Mitchell, 19, had felt imprisoned by the weather in her family home for what felt like years, playing the facts of her situation over and over in her head. Every day she obsessed about the contents of a box that she kept hidden in the kitchen. It was full of love trinkets, letters, a photograph, and an engagement ring that would never be worn. Alice was devastated by heartbreak, and as can happen with heartbreak, thankfully infrequently and usually with people that are already troubled, it had taken hold in her soul. It had begun to fester, turning into something dark and ugly. Her love, she knew, was slipping out of her grasp, possibly into the arms of someone else, a man, probably for good. She couldn't bear it. She had done something extreme before, trying to make her love take poison with her in a grand, irrational gesture meant to bind them together forever in the afterlife. When her love wouldn't, she'd simply taken the poison herself, but had managed to survive. It was time for another grand gesture, this one fueled by desperation and a need to do something, anything, to make the pain stop. The woman she loved, who had already moved away, was back again, near her once more, visiting Memphis briefly, tantalizingly in reach, and maybe for the last time. Alice wrapped herself up to face the cold, and she set out in the family's buggy, steering the horses to her best friend Lily's house. Lily was taking care of her younger nephew that day, and she brought him along for the ride. Neither had reason to suspect that anything was wrong. The girls would often ride the buggy into downtown Memphis, the 1892 equivalent of teenagers cruising to the mall. What remained unspoken between them, though, was their most recent rides were for the purpose of surveillance. Alice, obsessively looking for signs that her love was back in town. She had become an experienced sleuth when it came to the whereabouts and movements of her newly ex-fiancé, and she knew that Frida, the love of her life, was visiting Memphis this week with her sister, and staying at the home of the widow Kimbrough. Frida's last, brief letter, so curt and cold, much, much worse than a long emotional farewell, said she would probably be leaving on a steamer after this visit. Alice knew exactly which one. And she knew that Frida would have to board the ship before sundown. It was now or never. So, at 3 p.m., Alice steered the buggy containing her and her passengers toward the Widow Kimbrough's house on Hernando Street. As they reached the home, the door opened, and Frida emerged along with her sister Joe and their friend Christina. Alice's heart caught in her throat. It was her, here, now, on the sidewalk. They followed the trio slowly in the buggy, their prey unaware. And yes, they were all moving towards the waterfront. Frida was leaving. Alice pulled ahead of the three girls and stopped the buggy at the post office. She leapt out and stood there, watching them walk past her. The girls appeared to either not notice her or deliberately chose to ignore her. After all, the Ward sisters had been forbidden by their elder sister, the woman who raised them, from communicating with Alice or Lily ever again. Later, Alice would say that Frida saw her and their eyes met and Frida had winked at her once with her right eye. When they had been together, blissful in their love, they had made the slightest gesture into a romantic code. To Alice, Frida had told her she still loved her with that wink. She froze for a moment, as Frida and company moved out of sight, and then suddenly took off after her in a mad dash, with Lily calling after her from the buggy. Alice screamed over her shoulder that she was going to see Fred, her pet name for Frida. She still intended to do what she came to do. She had something for her love. In her dress pocket, she clutched a gift for Frida. It was a final one. It was her father's straight razor. You're listening to Wicked Gay, a true crime podcast about gay people doing awful things. Hello, and welcome back to Wicked Gay. Again. Yes, it's still a thing. I'm your host, Jay Harvey. And thankfully, we're moving out of the worst month of the year and into the best one. Like a lot of gays, Halloween is my holiday. It's my Christmas. Not that I like dress slutty or anything. I just like going out in P-Town and wondering if there's an actual killer under one of those masks, ready to turn the night into someone's deadly game. And I get to wonder who will survive and what will be left of them. But September, I, I don't know if that back to school anxiety it always carried over. I think it carried over into my old age or what. But it's like still hot. But the summer optimism is gone. And I remember, when, like when your new school clothes would make you all hot and confined in class, and you have to walk home afterwards, and just, ugh. and also nothing goes right in September for me. It never never has. For instance, I thought my COVID nineteen Lego addiction led to my current health issues with carpal tunnel and something called trigger finger. Have you ever heard of Tricker finger? I hadn't. So what started out as like a numbness in my thumb index and middle finger became my index finger swelling up, stiffening, and then I, when I slept at night, it would lock up for no apparent reason because let me tell you uh, in my sleep I'm not practicing using firearms, right? And I wake up with my finger curled up and stuck. So I would have to like use force to straighten it out to like a finger default position which would send waves of pain radiating through my pan. So it was new and awful. And it turns out it was probably exacerbated by my diabetes and not the Lego corporation. So I can stop giving the side eye to like the Daily Bugle, the medieval blacksmith shop, and Winnie the Pooh's tree dwelling and blame my reliance on baked goods to get me through the day. Oh, and the cortisone shot they give you to untrigger the trigger finger? That's some messed up pain, right? Anyone out there had cortisone shots? I had no idea. And she didn't say a word. She just was like, here's the shot. It has like a numbing agent in it. And I was like, okay. And then she did it. That is some messed up pain. To the point where I said out loud, I don't like this. I said aloud as that weird, like this weird pain soaked through my hand, accompanied by this wave of nausea because it felt like it was so gross and painful as it ruined five minutes of my morning. Note to self, ease up on the sugar. Watch my eyes go next, and I'll have to podcast in Braille. So yeah, that's where I'm at. September is leaving. Thank fucking God. But at least it's not January 1892, and I'm not a 19-year-old young lady, barely out of childhood and consumed, absolutely suffused, with love for another young lady who isn't returning it on the same level. And I know she's also attracted to other people, men actually, and I'm desperate without her. But I've gone to that place where no one else can have her either. Erotomania. Stalker sickness. It's a bad place to be. And Alice Mitchell went there. But what you'll find after hearing the initial story is that it wasn't so much the brutal murder that she committed that made her front page news across the country. It was why she did it. And the backstory. Same sex love back then was barely a f- fanciful notion. It bordered on science fiction. What was this, France? So when Alice murdered Frida, spoiler alert. Headlines proclaimed it as, quote, a very unnatural crime. Unnatural, strange, and perverted were the words most often used in the news coverage. Feast upon the headlines and copy. From the San Francisco Examiner, Love runs mad and deadly. Unnatural passion steeled the arm of Alice Mitchell. From the local paper that was the most well-read in Memphis, The Memphis Appeal Avalanche, Miss Alice Mitchell's Lunacy, Council have confidence that erotomania can be established, the perverted attention of one girl for another. From the New York World, Begs to see her Frida, passionate love letters such as a man might write. Those men always write in love letters. They're the only ones there should be, right? And from this case, a trope was spun, that of the mannish, murderous lesbian, unnatural in her desires and affections, and prone to killing. That trope would last for eons. The fact that these were two women who had been in love, stunned, and shocked the nation. And it was like America clutched a giant string of pearls strung from NYC to San Francisco. As you can guess, the patriarchy was thriving in the 1890s, flourishing. Women were almost literally second-class citizens. They were expected to be demure, silent, and exist solely to service the men in their lives. Any sort of variation from the norm was considered mental illness and to be swiftly stomped on. Not that Alice Mitchell didn't deserve what she got. She did. She committed a brutal and senseless murder. But the public reaction to her fondest wish, to marry and build a life with the woman she loved, was treated as an aberration of the deepest depth and ensured that Alice would never be heard from ever again unless she repented totally, which she only sort of did. We'll get to that at the end. This is episode 28 a very unnatural crime, Alice Mitchell. The majority of this week's episode is sourced from a very good true crime book called Alice and Frida Forever, A Murder in Memphis by writer and historian Alexis Coe. Coe used all the historical documentation she could find to rebuild the story of this long ago time, as well as filling us in on what society was like in the early 1890s in the US and how that influenced the case, how it was handled in the courts, both legal and the one that we call public opinion. Alice and Frida Forever even has these sad, wistful, stark looking illustrations by Sally Klein or Klan, Klan, that really adds this kind of old timey, almost Edward Gorey like feel to the proceedings. Check it out. I also used the old standby Wikipedia to write this episode. Alice Jessie Mitchell was born on November 26th, 1872, to George and Isabel Mitchell. She was the youngest of five children. Her family worried early that because they would notice as she grew up, she was a tomboy who never seemed to be interested in the toys and activities that young girls were supposed to be into. As you can imagine, late 1800s, girls were supposed to like dainty things like lace kerchiefs and darning socks and guys were supposed to be into like, I don't know, dueling pistols and buggies or some bullshit. That wasn't Alice. As a side note, luckily things improved with time. I mean, I really wanted Barbie's four-floor townhouse when I was a kid. The one with the elevator and all the space given to reflective surfaces and jewel tones? I never got it. Ahem, Mom. But I wasn't discouraged from wanting it either by my parents. And my dad was an Irish Catholic mailman from Dorchester. That's a neighborhood of Boston, by the way. In fact, he once made me a dress for my Barbie, my knockoff Barbie, from out of leaves from the yard. I mean, he drank, but that was still a really loving gesture and absolutely some societal progress for all of us. Thanks, Dad. So yeah, Alice wanted to play on the swings, I I guess, it was considered a boy activity back then, and to play football and baseball, she was very close with her brother Frank, with whom she did more boy stuff like shoot marbles and rifles. As for the aforementioned sewing, Alice's mother tried to teach her, but she was very resistant to it and never seemed to be able to learn how. Kind of like me in sports. All of this would be testified to during Alice's trial. Special note was taken that Alice never seemed to develop any interest in boys as she became a teen, and horror of horrors was sometimes rude to young men. Honestly, that sort of thing seemed to be grounds for putting you in a mental hospital, and it did happen. Alice eventually attended the Higby School for Young Ladies, which is where the well-to-do in Memphis sent their daughters back then in order to become young ladies. Proper ladies. Proper ladies. That's where she met Frida Ward. Alice and Frida hit it off right away, and they were fairly open about their relationship. You see, despite same-sex love being not even a concept in people's heads, it was sort of expected um, and accepted that young women would have intimate relationships with each other that involved kissing, hugging, holding hands even, almost as a rehearsal for the more serious and proper relationships they, would have, they were expected to have with young men in the future. It even had a name. It was called Chumming, which I get it. They were chums. Hello, old chum. But that name, for some reason, also summons images of Roy Schneider shoveling dead fish to catch the attention of Jaws, chumming. And in related Alice, uh, sorry, related Higby School for Young Ladies news, Alice's best pal Lily also went there, and she was also chumming with her fellow student and Frida's older sister, Joe. It was considered all very innocent, and for many of these young ladies, it was. We're not talking like they were a full on, tongue down the throat under the bleachers after a class or whatever. But for girls like Alice and Frida, who had full-on love feelings for each other, it was a handy cover. And yes, love developed between them. Alice's love for Frida grew into an obsession. Things seemed bleak, though, when Frida's older sister, Ada, moved them away to Gold Dust, Tennessee, and then her dad took a more prestigious job and followed soon after. However, Frida managed to convince her sister and father to let her visit Alice on occasion. And when she did visit, the girls would manage to stretch the visit into weeks on end. Young ladies weren't expected to hold jobs back then. Honestly, they were supposed to flit around the house and learn the harp and other condescending bullshit, so they had time to visit each other for weeks on end. And in Alice and Frida's case, they shared Alice's bed during these visits. So they were in each other's hoop skirts or whatever and bully for them, I say. But things weren't stellar between the two, despite their carefully worded love letters and their visits. Frida's feelings for Alice just weren't as strong as Alice's were for her. Alice would eventually find out that Frida was being courted by two men in addition to Alice. There was infidelity in the relationship, and it began to prey on Alice's mind, these men, and Frida's lack of utter, complete devotion to her. One night in December 1891, Frida was visiting, and as she lay sleeping in Alice's bed, Alice laid wide awake beside her, clutching a bottle of poison, laudanum, and before she fell asleep, Frida had just confessed that two men were courting her, and that she had feelings for both of them. Worse, this confession came the night before Frida's return to Gold Dust, Tennessee, where she would be an hour and a half away from Alice and Alice's influence or control. This was where, or when, Alice first got the idea that either Frida or herself had to die. This idea that the two women had to die if they couldn't be together would bury itself in Alice's mind and remain there until she made it happen. She later made a written "how to kill" list after this poisoning failed, with ideas for how the deed could be done. Frida woke at some point to see a bottle of poison in front of her face and Alice staring at her. Alice let her live that night, but she stole the bottle of poison uh, when she accompanied. She had an honor when she accompanied Frida onto the steamer that would take her back up the river to Goldust. She followed her into her stateroom, locked the door behind her, uncapped the poison bottle, and said. Marry whomever you want. And then she drank the entire bottle. Dramatic. So Alice survived the overdose attempt, but probably dealt with symptoms like an unbearably itchy rash, breathing problems, and obstructed bowels that resulted from, that usually results from allodotum poisoning. But was it as bad as Triggerfinger, I ask you? But yeah, she clung to one of them having to die. Unless she had a plan. She finally came up with a plan where they could both live together and not have to die. She detailed her plans for the future in three separate letters to Frida. Each one contained a marriage proposal. Her thought was that Alice would permanently live life as a male, so that they could marry. She'd be known as Alvin J. Ward, she would take Frida's last name, and she would assume all the the male roles in their new family. They would settle in St. Louis, Uh, Alvin would find a job and support Frida fully, they'd get a house, the whole thing, and live happily ever after. And Frida accepted Alice had secreted away sums of money, enough money to buy a house to start their life together. The money she did spend was on an engagement ring, ready to give to Frida, the whole bit. She even had the ring engraved, from A to F, it said. She knew that this is the only way they could be accepted as a couple by society if she was a man married to a woman. And a bit about Alice living as a man. It doesn't appear from courtroom testimony and historical records that this was a true form of gender expression for her, Instead, it was more of a means to an end. She felt that living as a man was the only way she could live the life she wanted with the woman she loved. And that's saying something. Alice was also somewhat of a control freak, as you've probably guessed by now. So she could claim all the rights of a husband over Frida, too. And, a, and husbands had rights over women back then. On Frida's part... She got caught up in the fun of this planned subterfuge and, she, and pulling one over on society and everybody else and their family and running away at the whole deal. It's was very, like, fun drama for her. She was always described as the more frivolous one. She liked to be as daring as possible in their displays of affection in public, seeing just how far chumming could go. Alice always asked her to tone it down. It always seemed like more of a game to Frida, which was telling seeing as her affections became fickle over time. Frida advised Alice, though, on what to wear as a male, what she would wear, and even inexplicably recommended that they be married by her own family's reverend, which was crazy, and might demonstrate how lightly Frida took the whole matter, and and really probably thought of it as a game, not getting how deadly serious Alice was about it and everything else. (laughs) And when I say deadly serious, I mean that, in one letter, Alice told Frida if she broke off their engagement, she'd kill her. Frida took this as a dramatic declaration from her lovesick fiancé, not realizing that Alice wasn't kidding in the slightest. Worse for Alice, during her own visits to Goldust, she met one of the men that Frida was having a flirtation with. This man, named Ashley, would later testify in court that Alice appeared unwell, and that she threatened to harm herself in his presence. She also sent him a long, menacing letter after their second meeting, noting that Frida wouldn't like this contact between them, but reasoning that she had every right to make it, not spelling out that she considered them engaged, her and Frida. She eventually went to buy a gun to kill him with, but was disappointed to find out that the gun seller wasn't selling a gun that would fit into her dress properly. You know, you couldn't really have the butt of a gun hanging out of your bustle or something back then. Then the worst happened. In August of 1891, Frida's oldest sister, Ava... Well, first of all, backstory. Since the mother's death, the ward mother's death, Ava took, had to take over, the eldest daughter, took over the mother duties. So she raised Frida and her sister, Joe. So she assumed the mother role in the house. She was the one who had moved the ward clan to Goldust to be with her new husband. So... Ava had noticed the intense, intimate closeness between the supposed best friends, Frida and Alice, and it worried her and repulsed her. But she hadn't the grounds to act on it. After all, chumming was a thing. Two young girls rehearsing for when they would be courted the same way by men. But Ava then got a hold of a series of letters from Alice to Frida and realized fully what was going on. And she had a complete and utter shit fit over this, what she perceived as something completely batshit crazy. She discovered that Frida planned to run away into the summer night, meet up with Alice, and escape to St. Louis to be together, and planned to marry. She stopped Frida from leaving that one summer night, got the entire story of what was going on out of her. She forbade Frida from having any communication with Alice ever again. She also forbade Frida's older sister, Jo, from staying friends with Alice's bestie, Lily, as if sapphic love was catching. She also sent some stay-the-fuck-away-from-my-daughter-perverts letters to, well, two, one to Alice and one to Alice's mother, Isabel. Now, the backstory on Isabel, I feel bad for this poor lady, she was a fragile sort of woman who reads like it was forced to have seven kids and had serious bouts with postpartum depression after some of them. For which she was institutionalized by her husband George. You know, peg the patriarchy, y'all. Without going into details, Ava told Alice and her mom that Alice was to have no contact at all with her daughters anymore. Alice fell into a deep depression, and she went behind her family's back and sent multiple letters to Frida and Goldust. Most of these, almost all of them, were marked return to sender, which only deepened her agony. She was convinced that if she could get one letter through, she could explain how their dreams to marry were still viable, and they could still be together. One did get through. Uh, Frida had responded to it when she was actually in Memphis on her last visit. It was chilly and very above board. No love declarations merely stating that uh, she was following her older sister's directive to have nothing to do with Alice. She referred to their doomed love affair very dispassionately as last summer's business. But she did note that she knew what steamer she'd be taking back up the river. So, was this code like a way of telling Alice how to meet up with her again under big sis Ava's watchful eye way back in Gold Dust? Alice would spend her days in the Mitchell family kitchen, obsessing over the letters that she did have and this one last letter Frida had sent her. She would, you know, handling the unused engagement ring, filling with her tears. She also began even signing receipts and other papers as Frida Ward and would claim later she didn't realize that she was doing that. At some point, she made a decision. If she couldn't have Frida, no one could. Certainly not one of the men that she knew Frida was being courted by. And in November, Alice stole her father's straight razor, and she would carry it around with her in her dress pocket wherever she went, just in case Frida came to town. And then in January, she did. So, back to the beginning of the story, where we began. The day of the murder in January. Alice flew away from the sanity of the horse and buggy, with Lily calling after her. Lily's nephew must have been, what the fuck? especially when auntie's friend returned to the buggy covered in her girlfriend and her girlfriend's sister's blood. We'll get to that in a second. So Frida, Joe, and their friend Christina were headed toward the dock to board the Lee, that was the steamer back to gold dust. When Alice comes bounding over the thawing ice, her father's straight razor gleaming in the gaslight held above her head. Christina saw Alice, saw her face, and looked completely shocked. Frida turned to see what she was looking at, what had startled her and she was greeted by the horrifying sight of her ex-girlfriend brandishing her dad's favorite shaving implement and looking really crazy. With her first swoop, Alice slashed her beloved across the face. Frida screamed and tried to staunch the bleeding, and her sister Joe wasn't having it and came to her defense. She called Alice a dirty dog and tried to fend her off with her umbrella. Alice was not bothered by this in the slightest, and she swiped at Joe with the razor and gave her a deep cut across her collarbone. Joe recoiled and screamed at Alice to leave her sister alone. Alice grabbed the umbrella out of Joe's hand, turned around, and swung at Frida with it and knocked her hat off. Frida began to stagger towards the boat, seeking safety. I mean, she's bleeding from her face. Joe was taken care of, so Alice ran after Frida. Joe called her a dirty dog again and told her she'd hang. I don't care if I'm hung. I want to die anyways, Alice screamed back over her shoulder as she pursued Frida Ward. The ground was icy, and Frida was slipping and staggering. Alice easily caught up with her, and she finished the attack by cutting her throat and killing her. Then she ran past, back past Joe and Christina and the horrified witnesses, and hurried back to the buggy, and she told Lily what she'd done. Can you imagine the nephew's reaction? He's probably like hiding behind the seat, shitter- shivering. In a move that Lily would come to regret, she told Alice that she needed to go tell her mother what she'd done. So later on, poor Lily would be charged as an accessory to murder, and it wouldn't look great to the judge and jury that she told Alice to go talk to her mom instead of telling her to go to the cops and turn herself in. Both Alice and Lily would be arrested on murder charges. Lily would eventually be released on bond, but Alice would spend months in jail while controversy over her and her crime raged across the country. Her father was a fairly prominent figure in Memphis, and he got her two of the best lawyers he could find one of them who would eventually go on to be Secretary of War under Theodore Roosevelt. As was typical of the time, Alice's father, George, he was a successful merchant. He ran the show. He determined that Alice would go with an insanity plea, just as he had determined that his wife, Isabella, should be institutionalized when she suffered those bouts of uh, postpartum depression. Also, Alice had confessed to the murder to the cops, and there were multiple witnesses, so not guilty wasn't going to work with anybody. But George Mitchell decided his daughter was mentally ill slowly on the basis of her reasoning for murdering Frida, that she was in love with her, and that she couldn't stand the thought of anyone else having her. Also, he was the many, many pe- one of the many, many people who thought the idea of two women marrying was sick and crazy talk. The press went, as the press always does, full tilt boogie sensationalist on Alice and the deceased Frida. It was the first time that discussions about lesbians ever really entered public discourse in the United States. Given the claims that Alice was a lifelong tomboy with no interest in the supposedly traditional feminine pursuits, the gender identity known as mannish lesbian, for lack of a better stereotype, was born. The judge that presided over the case was Judge Julius Debose. He loved the attention that the case brought him. Remember Judge Ito back during the O.G. Simpson trial? That's kind of what we're getting at here. He paid very careful attention to how he was portrayed in the press, and it often affected his rulings in court. This is one of the first show trials in the U.S. Our thirst for true crime, as evidenced by the existence of this podcast and many, many others, was just as voracious back then as it is today. Many, 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 many editions of the newspapers covering the case were sold on its back, and journalists from all over the country descended upon Memphis. Memphis. And they would go on to print as much fiction as they would fact. When they couldn't get the real story or talk to the people actually involved in the case one-on-one, they simply began making shit up. And there was no one to hold anyone to any sort of journalistic standards. The first libel suit wasn't brought until 1964 in this country after all. You had misspelled names, incorrect timelines, and Frida and Alice's friendship ending because Alice was, quote, too fast when it came to young men. So obviously, wow, they were getting shit wrong in many cases in this. And journalists also made sure to emphasize Alice and Frida's age and the fact that they were white, knowing that readers were more apt to care about harm coming to young white women more than anybody else. And it would sell papers. And I'm just going to keep going and not drop... Gabby Petito's name writes smack here. <laughs> and of course, with a big case like this, everybody wants to feel part of the story and contribute something so they feel seen and validated. Fuck, why do you think I put out a podcast? This one guy, a neighbor of the Mitchells, told one of the papers. Um, what did he say? Well, actually, let me interject here for a second. Okay, similar story. So back on my college days, I interned at the local big newspaper on a couple of different occasions. And each of my intern stints, I'd be working with three other college students, right? So one of those internships, I worked with a guy who I'll call Kenny. And Kenny was a perfectly nice kid. Like, he was a, he was actually a great guy. Uh, I think we might have had like one little disagreement once in our time as interns together. But honestly, nothing out of the ordinary at all. And we worked with two other students, a girl and another guy that I'll call Peter. Peter always seemed like a down-to-earth guy, too. I liked him. So fast forward maybe a five or ten years... Kenny ends up at the center of a pretty well-known crime case for its time. Like, if I gave you details, I'm assuming that listeners are true crime buffs who listen to this podcast, so you'd probably be able to pick it up right away what case I'm talking about, because it was fairly unusual for the time. It happened out on the West Coast, but it made the papers back here in Boston, and well, of course, he had worked at one of the major papers where I worked. And in the coverage, right, one day I'm reading one of the stories, I noticed that the writer spoke to Peter, the other guy, the fellow intern. And Peter, and I'm hoping that he was misquoted, but he <laughs> he's quoted. He was quoted as talking about Kenny's dark side and how menacing he was at, like, the co-op desk <laughs> at the paper. And they had a fierce temper and all of this, like, complete bullshit. Uh, unless okay so unless they had become besties outside of the office i didn't know about it and had like a whole friendship that i wasn't privy to peter was like really playing it up really going that dramatic extra mile to make him sound make himself sound like an insider as to what had gone on later on or whatever and honestly the only problem i ever perceived about kenny really uh he had a ponytail that was the one issue i took with kenny that might have indicated abnormal psychiatry involved in his whole personality because, uh, but a ponytail didn't scream future. Well, I'm not going to go into the details, but what it did scream was bong water and hacky sack. So yeah, the people shoving themselves into this, into stories with crimes are just ugh. like, honestly, if I'm in the scene of a crime and a news crew shows up, I'm going to walk the other way. You know why? I'm going to look fat and grotesque on camera and seem like I want attention too much. And I do want attention too much, but I'd rather channel that through a podcast that's at least a little entertaining, as opposed to being on you know, camera for five seconds and looking grotesque. Anyway, here's what the neighbor had to say about Alice, right? He said, I live next door to Mr. George Mitchell and have known Alice for nine years or more and have never considered her strong mentally. Her manner has been always flighty and unsettled. Bear in mind, this guy barely knew the family. And her ways different from that of most girls. She was of an impulsive disposition and given to doing very much as the present mood inclined her. Whether What an asshole this guy is. Whether it was to snatch up a rifle and stand about her yard shooting sparrows, or to ride a bareback horse at breakneck speed about the premises. How dare she? I have never seen anything about her conduct that was at all immodest, nor was she the least bit fast as regards to men. On the contrary, she seemed to care nothing for them, and rather preferred the society of her own sex. From a long and close knowledge of Alice Mitchell, her act was that of an insane woman. Shut the fuck up, neighbor guy. And that's the sort of people, that's the sort of shit people fed to the media as well as the cops. Now, the prosecution wanted to portray Alice as of sound mind so she could put her in jail, just a murderous bitch who deserved to do a hard time. That was proven difficult when one of the papers got a hold of part of Alice's statement to the police. The day of our wedding was set, and then not all of the powers in the world could have separated us. It was our intention to leave here and go to St. Louis, and I would have been Frida's slave. I would have devoted my whole life to making her happy. But when Frida returned my engagement ring, it broke my heart. It was the most cruel thing I had ever suffered. I could not bear the idea of being separated from her, whom I had loved more deeply than my life. I wrote to her and implored her not to break off the engagement, but my letters availed nothing. I could not bear to think of her living in the company of others. Then, indeed, I resolved to kill Frida because I loved her so much that I wanted her to die loving me. And when she did die, I know she loved me better than any other human being on Earth. I got my father's razor and made up my mind to kill Frida, and now I know she is happy. That whole Frida was happy to have been brutally murdered part kind of made it difficult for the DA to prove that Alice was all there mentally. The papers began siding with the defense. Alice had to be crazy. She went on trial that summer. Lily, who found herself on accessory to murder charges, testified against her, or testified, Uh, for the defense that she was unable to stand trial because she was incompetent. The court and the public learned what had happened in the carriage when Alice returned. And this is from the Alexis co-book. Oh, what have you done to her? Lily cried from the buggy as Alice barreled up the hill. I have cut Frida's throat, she said. No, you haven't, have you? Lily cried in disbelief. Yes, I have, she said. Alice, by the way, had dropped the razor on the floor of the buggy in all the excitement when she returned, and then she couldn't find it afterwards. The cops would later find it when they searched the vehicle. So Alice then goes, what's the quickest way I can kill myself? Don't do it while you're, you're here with me, Lily pleaded. Uh, ignoring the nephew, no one cares about the nephew. <laughs> and Lily's still piecing together what had happened. Then she goes, go home and tell your mother what you've done. Is there much blood on my face, Alice asked, to which Lily answered yes, as she held her young nephew close, finally. Alice was covered in blood, a steady stream dripping down her face and onto her coat dress. Take my handkerchief out of my pocket, Alice ordered, and wipe it off. She's really bossy. But as Lily moved a finely woven cloth toward her friend's face, a new realization came to Alice. Oh no, she said now. It's Frida's blood. Leave it there. I love her so. That's kind of sad. I sorry i know that she just practically cut a girl's head off but it's it's sad lily would later tell the court that she was pretty much naive to the ways of the world and she's from a tight-knit family so her first impulse when being faced with alice having committed this horrible sin this horrible crime uh, well she was terrified and she told to tell was to tell alice that you know go home tell your mom let your parents know what happened etc and of course It would look bad in front of the court, but she'd eventually get off and be uh, cleared of all charges. Alice was found, quote, presently insane, which meant that she was insane before she murdered Frida. We call it incompetent to stand trial nowadays. It had the effect of indefinitely postponing her murder charge and being sent to an asylum for the remainder of her life. Her lawyers had pushed that insanity offense big time, and they won. I mean, what else could she be? This young woman without any interest in the past society had tried to force her down, who wrote love letters to another young woman, and then planned to marry her while living as a man. It can almost make you cheer Alice on, but for that brutal, senseless murder she committed. In her testimony before a packed courtroom, Alice claimed that she murdered her ex-girlfriend Frida because they couldn't get married. And she reasoned that was the point of either of them living. What was the point of either of them living after that? And no one else should have been able to marry Frida if she couldn't. Her plan all along, she said, was to kill Frieda first, then to slash herself so they could both bleed out in each other's arms and die together. Joe's defense of her sister with the umbrella and all of the witnesses that ruined it for her. Alice was sent to Bolivar, Tennessee's Western State Hospital for the Insane, where she would live the remainder of her life, which wasn't long because she died there only six years later in 1898. It had already been decided by her doctors that her insanity was progressive and would only worsen with time. She gave only a few interviews during her time there, one in which was she was portrayed as a bright, happy, laughing girl who now referred to Frida's murder as the tragedy that ruined my life. She was said to live in a, quote, pretty little room, spending her days doing the things that she had shunned prior to her sentencing, like needlework and embroidery and reading the Bible. So how accurate this article was is anybody's guess. She died at the age of 25, and there was no official cause given, although consumption, which was another name for tuberculosis back then, was reported at the local papers. She was described as having had wasted away, and it was attributed to her her supposed insanity, and as something that usually happens to the insane. But in an article that came out over 30 years after her death, Lily's lawyer, who was said to have remained privy to the people in the case and the details of Alice's life, he claimed that she'd taken her own life by drowning herself in a water tank on top of the building. The most startling thing about Alice's case, as Alexis Coe pointed out in her book, it wasn't the awful bloody murder that she committed that had the country aghast. It was the motivation, love. That was the insane part to people. All the medical experts at the time, and I put quotes around experts, Because a good part of modern medicine back then could still be considered like witch doctor level. All these experts pronounced her insane because of her love for another woman. They said that falling in love with a woman had driven her mad. That's Wikigay for this episode. Thank you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please rate, review, like, click a star, etc., etc., etc. on whatever podcast app you use to listen. Our theme song is by Gino and the Goons. Additional music by JB. Artwork by Paul Chapman, who is moving away from Boston, and I'm very sad about it. I'm going to miss you, Paul, and your lovely husband, Chris. And audio engineering by the other Mr. Harvey. Oh, and you can drop me a line at wikigaypod at gmail.com. And if you've got any suggestions for cases or whatever, you know, hit me up. You can also hit me up at Wicked Gay Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You've been listening to Wicked Gay, a true crime podcast about gay people doing awful things.